Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. We're back. Part two. We're back with part two. Alicia Gutierrez Roman. Oh, I'm so excited to be back. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Controversial and Reproductive Justice Part 2. Brooke, we're back. We're back. And we're talking about an incredible topic. Yeah. So um, where we left off last week talking with Alicia Gutierrez-Romind is talking about these fatal abortions and the status of abortion prior to it being legal in our country. And she talks about her own awakening to this realization that before it was legal, it was therefore illegal. And so anybody that wanted to stop a pregnancy Mm -hmm. for whatever the reason um, was doing it illegally. And therefore, people that that were doing that were very desperate for whatever reason. Very desperate. And, and the people that were performing it were not educated in the way that they should be to help women get through right. this moment. Right. Or like she said at the end of the last episode, like sexually assaulting these women Ugh. as like payment and, and that type of thing. So she's going to introduce us in this next part to – these really high-profile cases, and in particular the case of Jerry Santoro, mm-hmm. that draw people's attention to this issue on a on a large national scale. That women are dying because they're having these illegal abortions performed, and there's silence about it, um, and and it's it's too taboo to really even talk about. So I'm going to turn it over here to Alicia to take that story away. There are lots of stories of women who die from complications because of their illegal procedures. I don't think that's the direction we're kind of taking this, but one of the most visible figures of this kind of back alley abortion is a woman named Jerry Santoro. The photos of her death and of the crime scene in her death really become symbolic for the the pro-choice movement of the 1970s. Now, her story actually happened in the 60s. She, in 1964, she was in an abusive relationship and she decided to flee that relationship with her two daughters. Uh, She travels across the country. She starts a new life for herself. And then eventually her estranged husband reached out to her because he wanted to, to see his daughters. She had already started a relationship with someone else. And she was actually already pregnant with her, her boyfriend's child. So this is a really unenviable position for her because she's still technically married. If her husband found out she was pregnant with another man, then a court could very much say that she was an unfit mother and take her children away from her. Uh, and in this period, the courts would have favored, you know, her father in the father in that condition. Um, if she's still technically married, but having this relationship with another man. And she was also worried that maybe he would become enraged if he saw that she was pregnant. That was the other scenario. So she was really desperate. And as this date kept approaching of when her estranged husband is going to come see her to, to see the children, She and her boyfriend, they basically found a medical textbook. 
they checked it out from a library, they checked into a local motel, and they just read over how to perform an abortion in a medical textbook. And her boyfriend was going to do that to her in this motel room. I mean, just think about how desperate you would have to be to basically say, I'm going to DIY a medical procedure, an invasive medical procedure. But, you know, you can't get the adequate skill and training of doing this. One physician, I don't remember if this is someone I talked to or if this was something that I read, uh, but they were describing an abortion as, imagine you have a paper stack, like a lunch Uh, and it's wet or moist or whatever, and there's cotton balls inside. And you want to use a spoon or something to try to get the cotton balls out of the wet lunch sack, but you don't want to puncture the sack. That is kind of the, the delicate tissue that you're working with that you're not trying to puncture as you're trying to get the cotton balls or whatever outside of this wet lunch sack. And so not surprisingly, uh, Jerry Santoro began to hemorrhage. She just began to bleed profusely and her, her lover panicked and he left her. And so she died and her body was found by housekeeping the next morning. And she was straddling bloody towels. She was hunched over. She was naked. Her knees are by her elbows. And this photo got out. It was put on the cover of Ms. Magazine. Um, shortly after Roe v. Wade was decided. In a sense, it's a bit of a response to the pro-life movement at this time. The pro-life movement is taking photos of magnified fetuses to show how inhumane abortion is. I mean, ironically, the fetuses that they are, are using for these images are already deceased because that's how they're able to get these pictures, but that's not part of the story. But it's, it's a challenge to that kind of personification of the fetus. It's this image of this lone woman who is deceased, who, you know, is representative of the many women who maimed, who were maimed or who died in back alleys or garages because they couldn't access a safe legal abortion. I can't even imagine like how, how out of options you must feel you are to have to think about doing this. I mean, just feeling like there was no other way, there was nothing else that you could do. And it was literally like your last chance. And, you know, and I think that in my research, that was something that I was really trying to convey the most. Um, When we, you know, when we have these discussions about abortion today, it is very much black or white, right? And what I was really hoping to try to do in my book was at least show these women who were making these difficult decisions. It's very, I think a lot of people who are, you know, super against abortion are kind of dismissive of the complicated decisions that a lot of people, a lot of these women are making that most of these women are not rushing into this and going, Oh, like, I just want to go to a party next week. So I don't want to be pregnant. Um, or, oh, I want to go on this vacation, so I'm going to abort. It, these aren't flippant decisions that these women are, are making. They're making them from the most dark and desperate of places. And no one wants to have an abortion, right? It's not like 
oh, so what are my goals for the next five years? Like, oh, I'd like to go to Spain and I'd like to go to Italy and I'd like to finish this degree and maybe I'll have an abortion or two. Like it's not in someone's like five-year plan to say, this is something that I'm like really looking forward to that I want to do. Um, and so I, I was hoping at least that in the book, you could see that for many of these women, it was a, a difficult decision that they made against a whole backdrop of bad options. You were talking before about this divide, this sort of racial divide with abortions and autonomy. Is there a racial divide in the pro-life v. pro-choice camps? Or is that, are both kind of a mix? This isn't something that I've looked into too, too, too much, but I would assume that there is a bit of a mix. Okay. Uh, but I think for different reasons, I think for some people, it could be religion that is kind of putting them into the pro-life camp. And for others, like, I, I think a lot of it has to do with religion, but maybe Catholicism versus kind of fundamentalist Christianity. There, there's a book that just came out, I think it was 2018, and it's called Women Against Abortion, Parissa Hodgeberg. I, I met her and I should know how to say her last name and I do not. I just referred to her as Carissa. Um, but her book uh, just came out maybe uh, 2018 or so. And she actually looks at uh, women in the pro-life movement beginning around the, the 60s and 70s. In her research, she mostly talks about um, middle and upper class white women. There's one chapter where she does talk about a black woman physician who was heavily involved in it, um, but it's that she's just one figure. Most of the other ones are are white women. It's a really fascinating book. Check it out and maybe even reach out to her. It was it was mostly white women, but I don't know if that's because they have the most resources and the ability to kind of organize and like have a paper trail versus other people. But for what I found in some of my research too was that even among like the non-white medical professionals, there was this kind of conservative tilt. I argue that for, you know, for black physicians, part of it was about appearing legitimate and kind of falling in line with the mainline American Medical Association rhetoric. And um, so how much of it is that and kind of being on board with kind of the mainline thought um, versus how much of it is this kind of move towards, you know, respectability politics. This this photo of of Jerry Santoro, it's it becomes really well known. It's it kind of gets weaponized by the pro-choice movement. And it's published in Ms. Magazine just uh, right after the aside in Roe versus Wade, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, in the late 60s, we do begin to see some kind of movement towards liberalization of abortion laws. California ends up decriminalizing abortion in 1969. And when they decide that, um, you have a number of other states that begin to challenge their own abortion laws as well. And a handful of states began to legalize abortion on demand. So you get the dropping off of some abortion laws and then the outright legalization on others. But again, these are just individual states. So you're going back to this kind of patchwork of, of individual states and their own little 
on laws. So it's not until the Roe versus Wade case that we actually see something at the federal level. And so this case would come about when you have these two attorneys who are representing uh, Norma McFurvey. Norma McFurvey takes on the alias Jane Roe for this case. And the attorneys for, for her argued that Texas's law against abortion violated her constitutional rights. At that time, the Texas law basically said that all abortions were illegal, except if necessary to save the life of the mother. Now, McCorvey's life was not in danger. Rose's life was not in danger. She couldn't afford to travel to another state that maybe had a more liberal law. And she argued that she had a right to have an abortion in a safe medical environment. So the court ends up ruling in her favor um, it initially, and then it, there's an appeal, and then that's when it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so this was also decided in a 7-2 decision. The court ruled that Texas's law violated her constitutional right to privacy, and again, that she has a zone of privacy uh, basically written into or at least extrapolated from the first, fourth, ninth, and, and 14th Amendment, that the court's should not be able to basically control things that kind of fell within this zone of privacy. And that was contraception and marriage and child rearing. All of those things were protected by this zone of privacy. And that zone was broad enough to include whether or not uh, a woman could terminate a pregnancy. Now the court in Roe, they did kind of adopt this trimester framework. Um, part of the reasoning for that had to do with whether or not the state had an interest in protecting the fetus. And so they relied on medical professionals to kind of help adopt this framework. Granted, the state has an interest in reproduction for whatever reasons the state might have that taxes, you know, population, military, whatever. Um, so the state does have an interest in potential life, but that interest could never override the women's individual rights that she has protected in the constitution. So they tried to weigh a woman's choice with the state's interest in protecting fetal life. And so that's kind of how they adopted the framework for the trimester system. So in the first trimester, the fetus isn't viable and so the woman's choice reigns supreme in that trimester. There, the state did not have enough of a compelling or conflicting interest in the fetus in that time in order to justify preventing her from terminating the pregnancy. However, in the second and third trimester, as we, especially as we are, you know, past viability, then the state could have an interest in protecting the fetus or preserving the fetus so long again as that not didn't override a woman's right to life if it was a severe like medical issue. Um, they also argued that abortions after the second trimester are a little bit more complicated, potentially a little bit more dangerous. So individual states could begin to kind of restrict or provide uh, regulations for abortions in the second and third trimester. Again, so long as they always leave an exception to protect the life or health of a mother. These potential restrictions were constitutional because they gave her that out, but then they also could kind of regulate the, the medical risks with the, the interest in the fetus. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. I really like the way that you framed that, like sort of thinking about it from a like a state standpoint and what they're interested in protecting. So it's interesting because I know that those that states like I want to say Alabama recently passed something trying to challenge the first trimester stuff. Right. And like making it so that you can't abort after six weeks which is like people don't even know they're pregnant at that point. Right. It feels like in, and I can't tell if it's the current political like climate, that's just crazy. Or if the foundations for Roe v. Wade are really that feeble that it's not actually, because it's not a legislative, it's not a law. It's not a federal law. It's a, it's case law. So how does, like, is this a very feeble thing? And, you know, are states like Alabama going to get shut down with things like that? Or in kind of popular feminist mythology, Roe v. Wade is like super, super significant and important. Most of the tenants of Roe v. Wade have already been chipped away at or eroded with the 1989 case Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Planned Parenthood versus Casey moved us away from this trimester system. So this is no longer what we operate under. We now operate under an undue burden standard. So it's similar in some regards uh, in the sense that during the first trimester, the state still cannot outright ban abortion, technically. They can impose a bunch of hurdles and uh, obstacles to make it as difficult as possible for women to get an abortion. Now, it's basically all of these different states can create different laws that make it harder to get abortions. It's no longer kind of within the medical realm or anything like that. These states can draft laws that are designed by intent to limit access to abortion And then it comes down to someone actually suing to say this creates an undue burden. And then it gets kicked back to the courts for the courts to determine whether or not it actually does constitute an undue burden. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of these different states are kind of testing the waters to see what they can get away with, because it is no longer a a trimester system. It is no longer, um, you know, we can't limit anything in the first trimester or anything like that. It is, we can make it as difficult as possible. And as long as a court says it's not a burden, then it's fine. And that's basically what we operate under now. It was a a bit of a compromise. That was also a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Most people who were pro-choice were kind of relieved um, because it's still it didn't outlaw abortion or anything like that. And most people who were anti-abortion were also relieved because they had all of these options for making it as restrictive as possible. What we're seeing now is I think just chipping away and kind of testing of what constitutes an undue burden. And that could vary from state to state, depending on how each individual state's Supreme Court determines or, or measures these things. It's incredibly vague right? What constitutes an undue burden? What constitutes an undue burden for someone who is wealthy of means is not the same as what constitutes an undue burden for a woman who's living on minimum wage with two other children. So it's the courts now deciding, basically. And for the the women who are most hurt by these new laws 
are low-income women, they are minority women, they're younger women, and they're living, women who live in rural areas. They are the ones who are most hurt by, by all of these different restrictions. There was one state, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but they recently, I want to say it was maybe t- Tennessee, maybe Alabama or Mississippi, it was like one of those three. They recently like revised their state constitution to say that um, that abortion was not a protected right. What I imagine, this was right around the time that Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, was that should a U.S. Supreme Court case come up that basically reverses Roe versus Wade, then this individual state has already created the framework for abolishing abortion in their state. That, I think, is kind of the long-term game for some of these states. Uh, is basically pushing on what constitutes an undue burden and then laying down the framework for a potential reversal of Roe v. Wade to basically abolish abortion within their state. In which case, it would probably just go back to the state level and individual states determine unless there was a U.S. Supreme Court case that said abortions are unconstitutional, which who knows. You talked a bit about how this is much more gray than black and white. And I feel mm-hmm. like it is feeling black and white. Like there's these two pro, <laughs> pro-choice, pro-life sides where, you know, and, and, and both wanting it to be the law of the land, you know, wh- where do you think most people are when it comes to these issues? Most Americans, there was a survey that was actually done recently. Most Americans believe Abortion should be legal in at least some instances. Most Americans are not 100% anti-abortion. Most Americans are not abortions for all. Here's an abortion. You get an abortion. You get an abortion. Most Americans are somewhere in the middle where they either trust women to make reproductive decisions for themselves or believe that there should be medical abortions available if a wo- if a pregnancy is dangerous or if a woman's life is in danger. Most Americans fit somewhere in the middle right there. Um, you have maybe, I think it's something like 18% of Americans who believe no abortion should ever take place, that it should be 100% illegal. Uh, the remaining 70-something percent of Americans believe it should be legal in at least some instances. It's frustrating that the at least some instances makes it really vague. And then there's all sorts of, you know, I think they've started like, well, we could ban these procedures and these types of things. And like I had a life-saving procedure done that is basically an abortion after I had, after I had my son. Um, but it wasn't an abort. Like I wasn't pregnant, but they had to do the same thing <laughs> that right. you described of the scraping. Like they had to do that. So, yeah. um, so it, it does seem like it is. So I wish that our rights were not defined by whomever has control of this stuff, anymore. <laughs> you know? Right. And, and that's, Vagueness, legal vagueness was one of the reasons that California ended up dropping their abortion statute that they had in 1969, because they basically said there is no common sense definition for this. And so if we keep the the law in the books as it's written, 
and a physician performs an abortion that they think is, is necessary. And then some attorney or judge says that was the wrong reason. The physician has no due process. There's, there's no legal protections. It's not a common sense where you read it and you go, Oh, for sure. This is a solid reason to have an abortion. And this is not because so much of that was left to the individual physician's discretion in some instances. And this is why we end up getting towards those therapeutic abortion committees you have physicians who are saying, oh, my patient is vomiting a lot. And so she's going to have an abortion. And so you have this kind of massive spectrum that some people called, you know, abuse of this vagueness to justify abortions when some people really did need that, that legal option because their life was in danger. The, the problem with kind of having a broad you know, law or phrasing of the law was that it leads to this vagueness and potential exploitation. So there were attempts to kind of clear up what it actually meant. And, you know, these are the only instances when you can have an abortion, but then that was limiting. And so there's no, I mean, we've gone through so many different iterations of these laws that it seems like in terms of of legal phrasing and writing, the only option is to say, you can have them whenever, however you want, or you can't have them at all. Um, you know, those are the only answers that make sense on paper that you can't really, you know, that you can't really like exploit or, or do any loopholes with, but then that's not serving the interest of anyone because then you're potentially putting all of these women at risk who do need it for medical reasons. And then you're violating all of these people's right to privacy if you're preventing it as well. That there, we have tried different laws that kind of work with, you know, broad terms and, and, but they were considered void for vagueness. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our history makers, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Ken. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah. Thank you. You guys make this show possible. Well, so you have this stuff in your script about the Hyde Amendment. And um, so I'm, so it's, um, but I did want to ask, because this seems like another horrible case of a person um, like Jerry who um, had these awful things happen to them. And I'm curious how common they were. Um, and I'm wondering if you maybe could work it in the, the commonness into talking about this other case of a person who, um, because obviously horrible, but, but is this something widespread that's worth, you know, like, obviously they make an amendment. So, (laughs) so it, um, is problematic enough. Well, so the Hyde amendment, uh, was passed shortly after Roe versus Wade. 
Um, and I mean, as soon as Roe versus Wade happens, uh, you begin to see much more visible resistance to abortion. You, um, this is one of the things that the, you know, the Republican party of the 1970s and 1980s really jumps on, uh, to kind of organize themselves, um, in, in terms of like having a, a moral platform, uh, for their, for their party. And so the Hyde Amendment is basically a, uh, a manifestation of this anti-abortion movement that emerges uh, it, it existed um, in Women Against Abortion. She talks about how this anti-abortion movement had existed in the 50s and 60s, uh, but it becomes much more vocal and visible after Roe versus Wade. Um, and so with the Hyde Amendment, you know, they're trying to restrict federal dollars from being used for abortions. Um, so I think this backlash toward a kind of liberalization of, of laws that kind of provided opportunities to women is common. I think we see this backlash uh, as a pattern. Um, and in terms of, you know, how common are these horror stories? It's hard to say. I and mean, we're dealing with a, a medical procedure that has all of these negative associations with shame and, and guilt you know, if women have illegal abortions and they're successful, they don't talk about them openly. They kind of keep those to themselves. And so when we're talking about illegal abortions, we're talking about a minority of a minority. We're and we're only finding out the ones that go horribly. So it almost even adds to this negative perception, again, that all abortions are dangerous because the only time we know about abortions is when they go badly. And it kind of adds fuel to this um, inaccuracy, I suppose, because the successful abortions are invisible. They're difficult to study. They're, you know, they're not in writing or anything like that. And the ones that we do know about, we know about because there's records that are associated with them. There's death records, there's coroner's reports, there's all of these other things. So there is this kind of bias in what types of sources are available just because of the nature of this procedure. Now for the Hyde Amendment, um, this is more also of an example of how some of these abortion restrictions disproportionately affect low-income women and women of color uh, because Rosie Jimenez, who um, is often cited as the first victim of the Hyde Amendment, um, this is in August of 1977. That's when the Hyde Amendment goes into effect but it's shortly after this that she tries to, to get an abortion. She already had a child. She was trying to finish school. And even though abortion is legal, it was cost prohibitive. It would have been about $400 for her to get a legal abortion. And she had money, but she wanted to use that for school. She was finishing up her, her last term. She just wanted to be able to graduate so that she could you know, set herself up to succeed with her child. She was a single mother, um, but she ended up finding an unlicensed abortionist who performed the procedure for only $75. And she quickly developed an infection and, and died. They tried to stop the spread of the infection by giving her a hysterectomy, but she ended up, it was too late and she got organ failure. Even though the procedure is legal, right? It was basically out of reach for her. 
and I think that's similar to like what we're seeing with this undue burden standard. Um, if you are creating all of these laws that say mandatory waiting period, uh, if you're creating all of these laws that basically end up shutting down 90% of the abortion clinics in your state, then what does that mean for a poor woman if she has to drive across the state for a procedure, stay at a hotel overnight, or drive back home and then come back 72 hours later? Uh, it's creating all of these hurdles that make it difficult for her to get a safe medical procedure. And so then what other options are available to her? Does she try to do it herself? Does she try to find someone else to do it? Or does she then just carry that pregnancy to term because all of these other things have created an undue burden for her in her financial situation? For someone else, that might not be a, a financial burden or an undue burden. So it's, it's kind of represented that same Red, um, you know, the courts have already in in some of these abortion cases decided that the right to something and then the exercise of that right for people who are dependent upon the state are mutually exclusive things. That if you are relying on the state for welfare or things like that, and your financial means or you know, your dependence on the state are preventing you from exercising a certain right, then that's not really anyone's problem but your own uh, in, in some of these cases. I'm not remembering the case off the top of my head. You know, so the exercise of a right and its existence are, are two different things. If you're too poor to exercise your right, then that's, that's no one's problem. But you're, you know, what we see with the Hyde Amendment is, is more on par with what is going on in so many of these other states that um, technically abortion is legal. But if you were on the ground in Mississippi and you see that there is only one clinic in the entire state, then it's legal, but is it accessible? Uh, there is no, this is one of kind of the, the phrases for the reproductive justice movement. There is no choice where there is no access. And so it's practically impossible for some of these people to be able to exercise a right that they supposedly have. Um, if the situation on the ground is basically preventative of, of them exercising that right. But the Hyde Amendment was challenged in courts. It, it ultimately ends up staying with the Hyde Amendment. And then again, with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you basically have the door opening for some of these states that are maybe more conservative or anti-abortion to basically, you know, not allocate federal funds to abortions or to create all of these other restrictions that make having an abortion incredibly difficult. So I think what we're seeing is, I think Roe versus Wade is more symbolic than anything. Um, you know, were Roe to get overturned, then, you know, how much of a reality on the ground is that going to, to make a difference? I don't think much because so many of these individual states that are against abortion have already started trying to create and draft legislation to make it more difficult. And other states like California, where I live, in that same political climate, they are kind of legislating access or like saying in their constitution that women have a right to do this. So I think we are seeing kind of a divergence. The states that are pro-choice are codifying that. They're putting that in their laws. 
They are making sure that it's accessible. And the states that are anti-abortion right now are creating as many burdens and obstacles as possible. So that if Roe were to suddenly be reversed, I think we would just see more of the same and with states going in these two divergent paths. Those that want to protect abortion will, and those that want to get rid of it will. And then it would come down to the state level unless there was this other case or it got codified into the U.S. code to say that we have this right or we don't. It is still legal. Abortion is still legal. It's still theoretically a right. But for so many women of reproductive age right now in the United States, it is inaccessible. It is out of reach or it is difficult to find. And so I think what we what we should be aiming for um, is just kind of ensuring that in the areas where it is protected or out of reach that, you know, women do have these options to be able to, to exercise this right. It's interesting to think about how both states are basically, or both um, types of states are basically arming themselves to um, prepare for the more federal conversation about this. Well, Brooke, she's incredible. I mean, can we just be best friends? I know she's on our board, which is pretty awesome. But yes. Let's just she's also in California, though, which makes her far away. And cool. And cooler than <laughs> us. Yes, way cooler than us. Way cooler. And she's a published author, a doctor. Yeah. I mean. Life goals. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Why is she hanging out with us? No, she's awesome. This was such a great topic and one that I think a lot of people listening are very interested in and I think a lot of teachers struggle with. So mm -hmm. really, really unique. So how are we getting this into the classroom? Well, my hope is that teachers listening can obviously take some of this information. As always, I recommend that the podcast be just a stepping stone into learning more about it. I hope people will find her book and read it. It's available on our website. We have it linked to Amazon right on our website um, because I think that will provide even more depth and this is a good teaser for you. Um, and then my other thing that I'm going to be working on is building inquiries based on some of the ideas she talked about. And a couple okay. things that stood out to me were as she talks about Margaret Sanger being arrested. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this modeled before in other inquiries that the Stanford History Education Group have produced. But um, taking a, a person who's arrested, who's broken the law, but oh. a law that later goes on to be changed and challenged, you know, in, yeah. in the court system. And so, you know, a question to think about is, did Margaret Sanger break the law and have kids get into, you know, the legality of the law, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the constitutionality of the law. That's tough. And that'll put some kids on some on their heels a little bit, which would be a really interesting topic and how they conclude. And mm -hmm. that's very cool. I think another question that's worth asking, and I think one that we are going to witness, and so this could be something you do in a current events class or a government class because it's more current event-y, but you could certainly <laughs> do it in a history class, is to think about whether or not Roe v. Wade as a Supreme Court case is strong enough as 
uh, you know, to legalize abortion when we have states right now that are currently trying to challenge that and basically, you know, okay, you can't Overturn. have abortion after six weeks. Like, you know, like, okay, cool. Like most people don't know they're pregnant then. So great. Um, oh, yeah. So how, you know, maybe we could debate whether the legislature needs to weigh in or if it's okay that we have essentially cases, yeah. the the court has decided that this is the law of the land um when it's it's constantly being chipped away at and expanded depending on the state that you live in mm. um That'd so be a very interesting debate Oh, it would be really interesting. And, and I think you could keep it in, keep it very narrow, keep it really academic to, and, and, you know, Roe v. Wade could be the, the thing that you're talking about, but it's really about balance of powers and in, in government. And, you know, does, should the court be the one that's making these types of decisions or should it be done by legislatures? And, um, you know, I don't know that the legislature would ever <laughs> have enough votes to weigh in on that. So I think it would be really... We can help, Kelsey. We, we can help. <laughs> um, but also, it could be cool to take it from a state-by-state standard yeah. of just saying to the kids, okay, you take West Virginia, you take New York, how are they enacting Roe v. Wade in their yeah. current legislature? It's very different state to state. And you could find really cool patterns with that. I mean, you've got free and slave states in history oh, yeah. and fugitive slave themes. laws. Yeah. And you could see how we have this long history of things being legal in one place and illegal in another place. Um I also think there's a website called ProCon.org, and they do a really good job of just providing pro and con arguments for this. And I've used that when I taught government. And that just might be a really great way to to provide balanced information to kids about... So not go solely left. <laughs> correct, Brooke. <laughs> Don't take my advice. But that's a really cool website. So I bet it has a lot of other debates and really... Oh, stuff. yeah. Lots of cool things. Cool. You know, should marijuana okay. be legal? Like, there's a million things no. on there. Um, so... So I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of different places you could take that. I am going to build an inquiry based on Margaret Singer and Roe v. Wade that okay. people can use in class. And we'll put those up on our website for people to download. And if you haven't been to our website, we have dozens of inquiry-based lesson plans that are mostly for high school students. Um, we also have book recommendations, like I said. Um, and then, of course, we've linked to every women's history lesson plan that I can find on the internet. So they're available there for people for people to use. Also a great store with lots of cool swag about women's rights. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to get your t-shirt. But thank you, Kelsey. This was awesome. I'm so glad you got a chance to interview one of our board members and an incredible doctor. Thanks, Kelsey. Brooke, thank you. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.